0: Welcome to Tesseract Podcast, where we unlock your power to innovate. Hi, my name is Matt, and I'm going to be your host today. Tesseract's mission is to empower airmen, connect them to resources, and accelerate change across the Air Force logistics enterprise. Specifically, our team works as an innovation accelerator assigned to the Air Staff Logistics Directorate, where we partner with airmen to operationalize the new sustainment strategy. General Pervatsky, right? Did I get that correctly, sir? That's correct. (laughs) Hey, great to have you on, sir. Um, So excited to talk about the Falklands War today and to have you on the show and and for you to be so gracious with your time. Thank you so much. Before we dig into the nuts and bolts of logistics in the Falklands War, I I would like to talk a little bit about, about your background and really how you stumbled upon the Falklands War.
1: Well, very good. That's a you know, I often I uh, often get that question, and uh, um, it, it all happened uh, in the in the nineteen eighties, mid nineteen eighties. I was in the staff college at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, and um, and I attended the school of advanced military studies, and I had to write some monographs, and um, and I chose the the Falklands War uh, uh, to do that. Uh, as the war went down in 1982, uh, uh, three, four years before I was at Leavenworth, I was in Panama, and I was the secretary of the general staff there. Sounds like an important position. I just meant that I, I got to the office early and I sorted through the messages and I gave the gave a highlighted copy to the general there. But uh, I, I saw a lot of traffic on the Falklands War, and it really seriously uh, interested me. And so... um when I had to write those papers, I, I focused on the Falklands, one on the operational level of war, one on the tactical level of war. There wasn't much written at that time. And so I wrote to the to British and, uh, and lo and behold, they wrote back. And, uh, some of those people that wrote back are still friends today. Um, and I put those monographs together and, uh, they, they were well received. Uh, they were, uh, added to the curriculum at uh, Leavenworth and Fort Lee at the logistics schools. They're woefully out of date today. Um, but that was the start of my interest in the Falklands. And and so uh, later when I attended, uh, you know, my uh, 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 war college, which was a, a, a national a fellow at the Hoover Institute, I started uh, enlarging it into a book. And then I got... Uh, Uh, Distracted in my military duties. And uh, when I left the military in 2002, I went into business. And then uh, my wife told me to finish the darn book. And so uh, I did. And it was very difficult to get back into what that was all about. But uh, ultimately, I was uh, grateful that Pen and Sword Publishers in the UK accepted that and uh, published it in 2014. And it was released here in 2015. I was a little bit concerned because here you have a a Yank writing about a Brit war where they might get a little pissy, uh, but, it, but it's been, uh, it, it's been very well received. Uh, surprisingly, it's uh, it, it, as far as I know, it's the only book still written by an American on the Falcons war. And uh, it's the only one that, that covers the logistics. Uh, it's been touted to be a a, a real good history book. Uh, what I do is I, I tell what happens and then I come back in and, and discuss the logistics of what happened. So that's how I got involved in it, and um, uh, the uh, Falklands War had a had a profound influence on me. Uh, I would I would say that um, uh, what I learned from that war uh, just seriously affected my career because it changed my thinking about logistics organizations. Uh, at a time when I mean, you look back 40 years, we were really backward in our military relative to that. Everything was stove piped in the functional areas. It changed my uh, my understanding of support on the battlefield. Uh, you know that what happened at Fitzroy in the Falklands was just a watershed to me, where uh, where the op- operations outpaced the logistics, and uh, and so that's how I got involved, and I'm uh, grateful that I did because. It helped me immensely.
0: Reflecting on what you're saying about the the integration of like logistics and operations, and and really and thinking back to that point in history, I mean that's really the turning point of where the United States military began to think more jointly. Right when you look at uh, when you look at Grenada, when you look at um, just that that period of time. Um, so I'm sure that was an um, a unique lens to um, to look at this conflict with, um, and uh, and I'm sure it's been fascinating to see that evolve over time.
1: You know the uh, you you mentioned the uh, the the jointness that took took effect in our military in the in in the 1980s. It was it was really even more than that. I mean, if you if you looked at Army organizations, Air Force organizations, whatever um in the early 80s they were all stovepiped you had uh, you had transportation you had supply you had uh, maintenance or ordnance and uh, the medical i mean a lot of uh, lo- lo- you know logistics wasn't even at, at times associated with medical and, and, and in 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 the army in the mid 80s they formed support battalions that were multifunctional and that was the first step. I mean that's before even thinking joint. Now what how did the Falklands war influence me? Well, I was a real proponent for this multifunctional approach to organizations, but they they brought a a joint perspective into this. And so the the commando logistic regiment that uh, deserves many kudos for for that war, it was a joint organization. Uh, Navy, Marines, Army, um And it was 10 years before we did anything that was not even joint but multifunctional in the United States. So when I say this changed my thinking, Um, when I left, uh, when I left Leavenworth, I go to to Fort Hood, Texas. I get involved in a core support command. I'm a war war plans officer there. And we plan for Reforger 87. And we have these uh, core support groups, but they don't have control, but just command and control because you got these stove piped, got transportation brigade you got a medical brigade you you've got a a quartermaster brigade and we busted all that up and we gave these units to those core support group there was an uproar around the army i mean uh and so that led to a a change above the division level that has taken hold uh, not just in the army but but in other services so i was part of that and and i i give credit to the people in the Falklands are educating me on that. So important to be able to know more than one thing when it comes to logistics.
0: Do you want to walk us through the rest of your career? Just, uh, just a just a quick overview of. Yeah, well, you've had a long illustrious career.
1: Yeah, well, you could Google me, and there's a lot of stuff out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, I was ROTC graduate. I, I, I uh, regular army commissioned. Uh, uh, started out in the infantry, um, 82nd Airborne, 101st Airborne in Vietnam. Uh, transitioned into the uh, Transportation Corps. Never really served in the Transportation Corps, except for uh, you know one assignment at the end and a high-level assignment at the at, the, at one one assignment at the beginning, high-level assignment at at the end. Um, I, I served in multifunctional positions and in, 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 in tactical units. I'm talking the brigades, divisions, so on and so forth. Um, and and uh, you know, I think what happened at Fort Hood, Texas, with all that discussion about <laughs> the multifunctionality and reforger operations and stuff, kind of kind of created a reputation for me. And, and ultimately, I became a brigade commander. Fortunate to be selected for general officer, I, I um, first assignment was in the Pentagon as a colonel, and that uh, was a wake up call. Um, <laughs> I was the chief of the Strategic Mobility Division, uh, uh, helping to clean up the mess after Desert Shield, Desert Storm, when we, when ships broke down at sea, so on and so forth. Um, selected for a GO, I took over the distribution uh, operation for Department of Defense. Great Assignment, Pennsylvania came back into the Pentagon, uh, promoted again, and then uh, took over the Military Traffic Management Command, which had responsibility for port operations and surface transportation. And then decided to retire in two thousand two. Went into the commercial industry, and then retired. Retired in twenty ten. So here I am in Alaska.
0: You know, for our for Air Force audience here, you know, I'm not going to make the assumption that people don't know about the Falklands War um but i I think it is uh, underreported. I think it is under uh studied just generally speaking by uh, the united states military the the Navy and, and the Marine Corps have studied it with an expeditionary warfare lens um uh, and if you look at articles from the war colleges, uh, people have invested some time there, but a little bit less attention to it has been um given by the United States Air Force. Um, can you give our listeners some context of really where the Falklands War began and, and why it's so important?
1: Well, you know, the uh, truth has, in 1982, when this war went down, there's very few Brits that could have identified the Falkland Islands on a map. Uh, so, so many of the uh, of the men and I use the word men, I don't I don't use it, um, I mean, in a sexist orientation here, th- there was a conscious decision that uh, only people on land would be men. I mean, this was a decision at the highest levels. Um, many of the men that sailed south, they thought they were going to Shetland Islands, not the Falkland Islands, you know, off of Scotland there. And, um, but in the early 1800s, uh, some settlers started uh, finding their way into the Falkland Islands. It's an, Archipelago, um, several hundred islands. It's three hundred miles off the coast of Argentina, in the South Atlantic. It's eight thousand miles from from Britain. Now, this is the British Empire time frame, and clipper ships are running around the world, and they use that area as a way station to come in and again and regroup and get some supplies, so on and so forth and it takes on some importance. And 800 miles east of there is South Georgia Island. And that becomes very important in the whaling industry. And so at that time, uh, you know, those are kind of associated together, although they're they're separated. Well, it's a rugged area, okay? And And so settlers start showing up and they don't stay there very long. Some Argentines came there. They never established any kind of a governing body. Some French came there. The British came there moved back, came, came back in, and in the, in the mid-1800s, they established a permanent presence. Uh, they established a government. And, and I would say that if you're going to have a claim to something, you have to have some kind of governance over it. And for 150 years then, they, 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 they had a presence there. And, but that, the Falklands referred to as the Malvinas by the Argentines, Argentinians, they they thought it was theirs mostly from a proximity purpose, and so it, it was always a thorn in their sides that the British were in the Falklands. So you fast forward into the into the 1970s, and you have military juntas that are in charge in Argentina, and uh, and they start rattling their sabers about the Falklands. Now, at this time, the British government is really on the verge of giving it to them. I mean, a lot of people don't know this, but there was about 1,800 people living in the Falklands. Most of them are on East Falkland, about 1,500 of them. Uh, Over 1,000 are in Stanley. The rest are around these settlements. Um, They were not even British citizens at the time. They couldn't vote, but they wanted to be uh, affiliated with Britain. And so Argentina starts building up its military. Uh, uh, it, it, Britain can't come to an agreement on what to do. And, uh, and in the early 80s, they, uh, they, in fact, matter of fact, December 1981, they make a decision they're going to invade. All of this it goes under the radar of Britain. And so they start training in Patagonia in February nineteen. 19- 82 and uh, and they invade on april 2nd it was supposed to be april 1st but there was rough weather at, at sea and so it wasn't april fool's day it was april april 2nd when they invaded and and what resulted after that was the falcon islands war a very very unique war from a logistics perspective what well, we can talk about but um you know, from a historical standpoint, the, the the whole war is over from that invasion on the 2nd of April till the surrender on the 14th. It's 14th of June, it's over in 74 days. And so if you're talking military history here, you can get your arms around this versus getting trying to get your arms around World War II. And you can think about it in the strategic level, operational, tactical level. You can look at the Air Force, Army, Navy. It's a lot of things here, but it's short. 74 days start to finish it's over. And when I say it's over, it's over. You know, we, we've had some difficulty in closure in our recent conflicts. When this surrender takes place on June 14th, 1942, this war is over
0: and it won't happen again. <laughs> and we can talk about why that is, but yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting when we look at, you know, you mentioned World War II. I mean, there are some battles in World War II that lasted longer than 74 days, right? And uh, uh, so when we look at uh, each segment of, of the Falklands War, it's easier to digest, easier to analyze, and 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 things can appear to be more... Well, it's just an excellent case study um, to review, and which is why we're doing it right now. Um, now you mentioned the, the rugged terrain of the Falklands.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and I'd like to touch on that <clears throat> first and like, yeah. and setting the stage of what the Falklands Island, what what the Falkland Islands feel like um, the, the lack of infrastructure, the weather. Can you paint that picture for us?
1: Well, absolutely. It's, it, it's a rugged set, set of islands. Uh, there are, very few trees on the island outside of the capital of Stanley. Um, there are no ports on the island. There's only a jetty in Stanley, which means if you're not if you're going to attack something, you're gonna either you, could, you don't do it at Stanley, you're gonna do it at some rough area around the island. And there's not very many places you can do that. A half a dozen, and all of them are rough. Um, there's no airport there. There's an airfield. It is C-130 capable, about 2,000 feet, uh, but you're not gonna move big planes in there. Uh, there the, the terrain, if you're an infantryman, is not only just wide open, but there's long stretches of these uh, areas called rock runs. And we're talking big boulders that will run on for hundreds of meters. And if you're going to, let's say, walk across the island, let alone attack somebody up on the mountain, you're going to have to carry your stuff across that stuff and try to be silent. Um, The water is notoriously rough. Now, you may have read in the news last week about this rogue wave that hit the cruise ship just south of Ushuaia. I mean, that's not a long ways away from the Falkland Islands. The, The South Atlantic is... Is really rough, rough waters. Um, it's cold. It's windy. South South Georgia is the only place you can anchor a ship eight hundred miles away from the Falklands versus around the Falklands. Uh, it has katabatic winds that get well over hundred miles an hour, one hundred fifty miles an hour.
2: Um, now, if you're a logie, you're not. You don't have a port. You don't have an airfield. There is no roads
1: outside of Stanley, the capital, and so you go you go fifty miles in either direction from Stanley. I mean, there's no roads, and so if you're not going to attack at Stanley, you got to attack somewhere else. You can't transport anything over these bogs, and so the, the Brits aren't going to take many many vehicles down there because of that. So you got to rely on helicopters. You got to rely on landing craft. And there's no warehousing, <laughs> so no automated com- conveyor systems to move boxes. This is a, a low-tech war, and and guess what? It's 8,000 miles away from the U.K. Now, that's, to put it in perspective, that's 1,000 miles further from the West Coast to Guadalcanal <laughs> in, in World War II. So that's just uh, that's some of the, the, the challenges that about the terrain, you you wanna know some other challenges that the the Brits faced. Um, They have no forward position supplies there. They've got a a lone platoon of Marines that are there. And in April of 1982, they're rotating out annual rotation. So there's actually two platoons, about 50 Marines there. They have no heavy weapons. They have one small scientific ship that's got a 40-millimeter gun on it. Um, there's no host nation support. You're in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, the nations in South America are siding with Argentina. Um, the, the, there's just a lot of logistics challenges here uh, an 8,000-mile pipeline. And so... The Argentines invade, they surprise the Brits. And I mean, with a matter, within a matter of days, there's eight to 10,000 Argentines on this island. Again, military, Ministry of Defense in England, you got to make a decision here. You know, normally when you attack somebody, you want a three, a three to one advantage. Now you're at a three to one
2: disadvantage and you got to go over the beach. So that that's really... That's really the, the thing here.
1: And if you fast forward, if you, if you fast forward to what happens, you know the invasions on, on the 2nd of April, um, the Marines are, or the, the, the Brits are gonna go down there. They're going to do a surprise amphibious landing on the opposite side of the capital, 50 miles away from Stanley. It's going to bog down because they lack air superiority. They're going to struggle to get stuff onto the beach. And then those soldiers and Marines, paratroopers, are going to walk across that island with everything that they have. And they're eventually going to attack through some rugged islands. And and they're going to win on the 14th of June. And there's going to be a lot of stuff that happens in between. But that's kind
0: of of the, the military side in that rough environment. Talking about that inhospitable terrain, it just sounds like a nightmare for any logistician, right? Uh, and when we think about like, potential contingencies around the world, um, when we're we're talking about things like you know, within the Air Force right now, uh, we have um, our of maneuver called agile combat employment, which has to plan for those contingencies of being in areas that don't have infrastructure, don't have roads, runways, don't have what we feel like are the bare minimum to execute operations, right um, when we're there with boots on the ground um but then when we look you know to reel it back to the Falklands War here, I think that to, I mean the challenges don't start at the Falklands they I mean they start back in England, right um can you? Give us a little bit of context of the logistical nightmare that that began, you know, at home station before they even started their sail down to the Falklands.
1: Well, first and foremost, I mean, if you're going to go 8000 miles um, and and assemble a force down there that's going to fight, it's good to have a ship that will
2: transport somebody. Well, the Brits have zero. Transport ships. None. Now you have got a great Navy, but they've got zero capability to get their troops 8,000 miles south. And so
1: the Queen signs an order. They, 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 they start requisitioning ships. They requisition a total of about 50 commercial ships. They have to assess. What these ships need to make them uh, to suit military needs. Um, they fly engineers to various locations to assess these things. I mean, all this is happening within a couple days of this invasion. The first ship is is Canberra. It it uh, it's in the Mediterranean. It's a cruise ship. It's it gets the order to come back and. The, on the fourth of April, it, it takes its uh, passengers to shore. It shows up on the sixth of April. It's converted into a, a military capable ship. There's no swimming pool. There's a 47 capable steel plating goes on top of that. The stakes come off. Rations go on. It sails three days later with three or nine three thousand troops. Now that happens over and over again. Second ship was Uganda they didn't have a hospital ship. You're going to go 8,000 miles, you need to have a hospital ship. So this is another cruise ship. It's told to go to Gibraltar. It sails 68 hours later with 150 beds, fully staffed, fully supplied, Red Crosses on its side, capable. And so it's good to have a ship if you're going to go to war. So the British had to Had to change this equation. And that's the first thing they did. But when you have when you have a national leader like Maggie Thatcher that says do it, (laughs) a lot of other things have to happen too. And and so there was a rush to judgment to get a force moving south. And the day of the invasion, I mean, there were already Navy auxiliary ships moving south to become the supply for that task force that would would uh, uh, would eventually develop um, a navy support group flew from the from the UK to Ascension Island which is 4000 miles in the middle of the Atlantic british territory big airfield run by the US air force now on, on behalf of uh, deep deep space traffic tracking they 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 talk to the U.S. They said, hey, we'll help you in the airfield here. Come on down. And so a logistics unit launches down there. I mean, the next day from the invasion and sets up operations. And so they start with nothing. Within a matter of days, they've got what becomes the most important piece of this war logistically is Ascension Island. From there, they'll launch bombing runs. They'll resupport the, the, resupply the tax, task force further south. But you know, the depots are ready. You got war supplies here. Within six hours of, of the actual invasion, the supplies are moving out of the depots. It's Easter weekend timeframe. The rail cannot help. They can't reposition. So it's all what they call lorries. These are trucks going from depots to ports. Now you kind of put wrap your arm around or your head around this thing. You got ships coming in to be reconfigured. You've got military forces heading toward the ports. You've got supplies heading toward the ports. I mean, it's a total cluster. And they're trying to figure out where everything is supposed to come together. But, but it's a national rush to show determination here. And at this time, of course, it's a nightmare for the Logies. Uh, No one really expects the war to happen. They expect the politicians to solve the problem here, except for those military people involved. And so they start planning immediately as they head south. So there was there was a lot a lot of logistics actions that happened right up front at the strategic level to, to get this happening. Now if I'm, you're a, Yeah, go ahead.
0: Oh no, sorry, sir. Go ahead, go ahead.
1: But if you're if if, if you're just an ordinary soldier here. I mean, you're showing up on a ship, it's a mess. I mean, things get into these ships, it's, it's all screwed up. There's, there's only one laptop here, really, that has the, the whole inventory. <laughs> they know where things are at, but they don't have a total location inventory by item. And so they got to sort that out. They're going to bounce down toward Ascension Island, 4,000 miles away. And they're going to get below decks and try to, try to sort that out. Now, if, if you're, if you're a, a soldier, you're a sailor, you're going to be training. You're going to be training on battlefield survival skills, medical training. You're going to be zeroing your rifles. You're going to be training on, you know, um, medical activity if you get hit by a hostile ship, so on and so forth. And so you go through weeks of this training as you sail south. There's a lot of catch up going
2: on. But as you think back at it, and you marvel at it, I mean, a nation is prepared
1: when they're able to somehow produce a ship here out of the blue, and then convert it within a matter of days, the average conversion time was 72 hours, and get it going. It means somebody had a plan somewhere. It means somebody dusted it off. They knew what to do. Engineers were ready. And uh, ex- examples like this just happened over and over
2: again. But so that's how it all started.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine at the ta- being at the tactical level and, and executing these operational plans, right? You know, we have at, you know, when, when we think about the fog and friction of warfare, it doesn't get any more complicated than that for, for a loggy. Right. Hey, we have to move eight thousand miles. Um, and by the way, we have a list of what equipment we we do have. But hey, you got to go organize it and find it, uh, so we can offload it and equip you know and equip our force to um, to conduct kinetic combat operations. Um, it, it just it boggles my mind. Uh, well, let
2: me let me
1: tell you as a, as an airman uh, what what can really boggle your mind because as we sit here in uh, in 2022 and you think back in 1982 and you're in Britain so you're in the air force you say well gosh you know in that task force i mean there's there's going to be uh, well over 100 ships involved in this operation and they're going to sail down to ascension island and they're they're going to loggies are going to try to 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 get to things all reorganized in the ships, Uh, a war plan isn't developed until everything heads south. So, I mean, everything gets combat loaded, so to speak, but it's all wrong because it changes, okay? so But if you're an Air Force person, C-130 workhorse, very key to inserting things in remote areas, that becomes the key for resupplying that task force south of Ascension Island. It becomes key for inserting uh, special forces, so on and so forth. At one point, the, the battalion commander is lost and, and they, they pair, pair troop, uh, pair drop a, a, a new battalion commander in the South Atlantic. C 130s are critical. Well, in 1982, I mean, you can't just fly a C 130. It's got a range of what, 2,000 miles? I, I don't know. I forget. It's 8,000 miles. You got to get back. It's 16,000 miles from the UK, it's 8,000 miles from. From Ascension Island, at this time, not, not a single British C-130 pilot had play, uh, had trained in refueling. There were no probes on any of the British C-130s. So all this changed within a matter of a few weeks. And so the task force gets down there, Ascension Island, around the seventeenth of April. They start heading south, and the C-130 pilots that had just trained taking fuel for, from a Victor tanker, that's a jet. And so now C-130 is taking on this fuel as it's in a dive, so to speak. I mean, to me, that's pretty precarious. It happens over and over and over again. Now, if you if you fast forward to wide awake airfield becomes key for bombing runs. You, you think about that relative to the the Vulcan bombers, there's, there's seven Black Buck bombing bombing missions there. And I lose the exact count, but, but there's 12 to 14 refueling missions and, and multiple Vulcan or, or Victor tankers involved 80 plus crew to get a single bomber down there for one mission. There were seven of those. The Black Buck missions—they uh, they didn't do great damage, but but they they certainly told everyone Brit, Britain could 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 reach the Falklands. But a lot of stuff behind the scenes, air force wise, mm-hmm. and you know you don't have a whole lot of time to think about this. Yeah, <laughs> it's happening immediately, and so you, you you kind of think about it. Well, people had their head in the game. They knew how to react and so i i find it very impressive
2: so
0: yeah i i love talking about the aerial aerial refueling piece um you know, because i i told you an email about my dad you know flying with bob tuxford yeah and he would tell me stories because he flew with him before the falklands war He mm-hmm. was actually at his upgrade training uh to be an aircraft commander and you said he was a fantastic pilot um, and, and said he was hilarious in the cockpit, too. Um, but l- looking at what they had to do, I mean, they they went to museums, right, to yeah. to get equipment. Um, well, there's one
1: story that they went to San Diego and, and, uh, and, and got a refueling probe there off of, of a museum piece that that was written up. And I include that in my book. Yeah. I mean, they were scrambling to get it. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's interesting that you, you, you that you, you picked up on that. You know, a, a lot of people think that the United States helped help the British a lot, I mean it just didn't happen. Um, a matter of fact, I I, I I would contend that at the start, I mean, they didn't help at all; they hurt. I mean, they were they were trying to ride the fence here with Argentina. Uh, S- Secretary of State did not want to support Britain. Secretary of Defense, Casper Weinberger, did. He told the Pentagon to give them anything they need. <laughs> but but in actuality, wide awake airfield, big deal. We gave them about a million gallons of fuel right there. We we gave them uh, the newest version, the Sidewinder missile. We gave them some air air uh, field matting that went down with the Atlantic conveyor. I mean, this was theirs and they reacted extremely quickly and, and, and very well. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, um, you mentioned C-130s as well. I think that is also interesting given the fact that that is still a, uh, massive arm for, you know, logistics and sustainment for forward operations for, you know, whether it's air force and Marine aviators, right. Uh, to sustain the fight forward, um, and, and seeing how they were leveraged, um, back in the Falklands war, you know, provide some real life, um, case study context, um, to, to how they're used in, in operations, which I think is really cool.
2: Yeah.
1: The first, first plane that landed right after
0: the, after
1: the surrender was a C-130 and it was carrying mail. I mean, a lot of refuelings to get it down there, Yeah. <laughs> but it- it flew from Ascension Island.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: what were some key uh, logistics decisions that were made um, that that helped you know seal the deal for for victory um, uh, as the war continued to progress?
2: you know i i I don't think there was any any one real
1: well, I'll take that back i'll I'll mention one, but it, it wasn't so much the the key. Logistics decisions. The body blows were so many that it was uh, it was the ability to take the body blow. What I'm talking, I'm talking about the brigade support area being bombed. I'm talking about the logistics ships being bombed. I'm talking about having your total logistics plan shredded. Uh, the 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 logistics the, the original uh, logistics plan called for the ships to bring stuff to shore periodically. So there was just gonna be a postage stamp on shore. But when when the attacks on D-Day happened and Canberra had to get out of, Canberra has 3,000 soldiers. it's got a hospital on it. It doesn't have Red Cross markings, not that it would make any difference. They had to make a decision to put a field hospital on shore. They rushed it all to shore. That hospital, would treat a thousand patients and do 300 major operations. It was in a, a, a mutton shed, a refrigeration shed. And, and, and so, I mean, those are, those are decisions that have to be made. One of the biggest decisions that was made down South was an airfield that was put next to the landing site in San Carlos, at Port San Carlos. Now, keep in mind that Atlantic conveyor sank. A lot of the aircraft matting went down. The emergency refueling equipment went down. So people are improvising here. Um, Engineers are improvising. But to set the stage, there's a 200-mile total exclusion zone around the Falklands. And so for those Harriers to fight, to provide support, they're flying from 200 miles away To get into the Falklands, their time on station is very limited. Key logistic decision, engineer decision, was putting that airstrip at Port San Carlos. The British did not have air superiority until that happened. And so that airstrip went in, emergency fuel handling was put in place from ship to that airfield. And at that point in time, the British. Had complete control of the air, everything didn't go right. I mean Argentines got through, but they did not have that until that, uh, that air, airstrip went in. so I, I think that was absolutely one of the most critical things
2: uh, that would happen. yeah
0: what when we look at the defenses um, of the um, Argentinian military. And and we see truly how contested British logistics was. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think that it's, I mean, we haven't seen anything else like that, similar to that, uh, since World War II, in my opinion. Um,
1: you're absolutely correct. I mean, you, next time you're in an audience, you, ha- you have people to raise their hands the last time they had a, a you know, they were attacked from the air.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh uh-huh. uh
1: I mean, uh, and if you're... <laughs> If you're a logistician, your brigade support area is going
2: to be attacked and people are going to get killed. Um, This this commando logistic regiment that I mentioned, all of the logisticians here,
1: all services, they had to graduate from the commando logistics course. They're tough. It didn't matter whether they were, you know, uh, uh, you know, a marine or an army or or ordnance person or uh, they they were trained to fight out of a foxhole if they needed to
2: and they did <clears throat> this was a big difference here um in that lecture that you mentioned I um I talked about the toughness of these
1: this was this was the difference here this the toughness of the British troop, and and I, I, I use I've used the example in the past of two pair, the second parachute battalion,
2: and on D day, twenty second of May, you know they uh, landing craft take them to the beach, and they get. The ramp
1: goes down before the, before the, the beach, and so they, they step off into the water, and their mission is to climb up Sussex Mountain and to provide uh, overwatch over the isthmus leading to Groose Green. They go up there. I mean, it's not very high from our perspective in Alaska, but it's, you know, 1,000 feet plus. They go up there. They dig in on the reverse slope, <clears throat> and they're there for a week, and it's raining. There's no cover. There's no trees. Snows at times. <clears throat> the backup on the beachhead occurs and, and General Thompson's ordered to, to attack something. He doesn't want to really attack Goose Green, but he dusts off his plan and two para gets the mission. So now they walk off of, of Sussex Mountain to, to Camilla Creek to an assembly area and they prepare to attack down Goose, to, toward Goose Green. Now, to put this in perspective, we're talking six to eight miles. No roads, no
2: vehicles. You're carrying everything. an infantryman. and it's raining. And they start fighting.
1: And uh, uh, late morning the battalion Commander H. Jones gets killed, shot down by a, a machine gun, second to IC. Chris Keeble takes over, re- you know, reorients the plan. By nightfall, they surround Goose Green. They capture a thousand Argentines. Now we're talking about a battalion of four hundred people here. They've lost seventeen people. Eleven of them are officers and non-commissioned officers leading from the front, mowed down. They get down there. I mean, put wrap your your head around this thing. There's no supply vehicles there. It's clouded. helicopters can't get in to resupply them. At times they're crawling amongst their dead buddies and pulling ammo off of them. They get down there to goose green. They're exhausted, six, eight miles,
2: all on foot, and it starts snowing on them. Now, that's toughness. that's That's physical toughness and it's mental toughness.
1: And it is. The wherewithal to understand what's going on in the battlefield and, and and to transfer command to a subordinate. Now, a lot of people don't know is that's happening. The logisticians back in the support area they're getting hit with an air attack. Their supplies that they had put in sling loads for for two pairs blown up. The support area is on attack, and some of those people are killed, and so. It's a toughness in the logistics ranks. It's a toughness in that entire military. And so when helicopters are lost, these people don't like it, but they don't get a resupply as quickly as they might want. And and they're able to do that. And they were totally better than the majority of the Argentine soldiers. They had some crack troops, too but uh, the vast majority of those poor soldiers were uh, Argentine soldiers were conscripts from Northern Argentina, where it's warm. And now they're fighting in this tough climate. Very,
2: very difficult, but
1: yeah, a little bit of a tangent, but I, I thought that, uh, that, that kind of highlights, I mean, the true difference here of why when a lot of things happen, those body blows, they're trained, they're ready. They step into the breach. And uh, and that's what good units do. And from a logistics standpoint, going back to the 1980s when we were all functionally organized, you weren't ready mentally to do that because you hadn't trained in these other areas. So if you lose, you get gutted in your supply organization. The transportation
2: organizations, they're they're capable of doing that. And so, yeah, big deal. No, I think that's uh,
0: an outstanding overview of of the importance of of hard training, the realities of conflict and in warfare that were faced by, uh, you know, by the British. When we look at also to continue to reflect on uh, on what is asked of airmen, when we truly dissect. Agile combat employment, and we look at these, you know, and we, we look at a potential, you know, uh, future fight in the future of warfare. Um, airmen are going to be subjected to, um, uh, the re those types of realities. And I think the only way to prepare airmen for that is, you know, is hard training, uh, it, hard, realistic training that, um, that mentally and physically prepares us uh, for combat. Um, and I'm an armchair general here. I've never deployed. I've never been in combat. But um, I, I can only make the, um, the educated assumption here that, that that's what kept them going. And those were the experiences that, that they were able to reflect on and help them prevail in conflict.
1: You know, it's interesting you mentioned that. Don't underestimate yourself. There's a, uh, I, I know uh, at least three uh, uh, very successful army generals, all, all now retired uh, one field artillery, two infantry, one
2: three star, two four stars, never been in combat. But they were great generals because they they knew what to expect. They knew what their, uh, w- was needed
1: and they, and whatever role they were in, they, they did it. And so part of that is kind of understanding what happens on a battlefield, understanding what's happened in history. Uh, you, you can never judge at what point in time in your career, you can be
2: tossed into the breach. So, yeah.
0: And, and speaking of preparing for conflict, I, I think it is uh, interesting to reflect on, you know, the number of war games that have been done that show Argentina's victory um, or losses so incredibly heavy that the British had to, um, <clears throat> you know, go to the negotiating table. Um, do you think the UK got lucky? Well, I think that, you know, luck
1: plays into, into any war. Uh, I think you'd have uh, a lot of Brits disagree (laughs) that they won because they were lucky. Uh, There were certainly instances where they were fortunate, but there were many instances where where they were unfortunate. Um,
2: There was a real concern about the fact that they could lose. Um, So much so
1: that uh, uh, Julian Thompson, the land force commander, was literally ordered to get
2: off the beach and attack something, which led to Goose Green. At, at that point in time, Atlantic conveyor, container ship,
1: you you lost five Wessex helicopters, three or four uh, CH-47 helicopters, you lost 10 for... For 10,000, you lost a lot of rations. You lost air, airfield matting, you, you, you emergency fuel handling equipment. You lost people on that ship, including the captain. Same day, Coventry, the cruiser gets sunk. At that point in
2: time, five British ships have been lost. Okay? In the, in the, in the cruisers, Sheffield, brand new ships, half dozen years old, sunk.
1: There's not many people back in London that understand the difficulty of amphibious warfare, that you got to build up supplies, and that you got to then get off the beach but but there was concern that they might be forced into a situation where they might have to
2: accept some kind of a ceasefire or something um. In the backdrop here, Sandy Woodward,
1: Admiral Sandy Woodward was, was the carrier battle group commander. He had warned everybody, we got to get this thing over by the third week in June. Because I've got to stand down some ships and planes here. I mean, they've been going nonstop. And that that one CH-47 that survived all of its repair parts, like, too, do with the Atlantic conveyors. There's a lot of stuff that's being Band-Aid fixed here. And so he's saying, this has to get over by the third week in June. or I've got to stand down some stuff because things are starting to break. Well, all this happens the end of May. And also, why you got to get the war over is it's starting to snow. The Winter is setting in in the South Atlantic. And so there's a, there's a, sense, there's a sense of urgency. And so people in London knew that. Although they didn't understand the complexity of amphibious operations. So there was a lot of disagreement and disgruntlement about this stuff. But, uh, but, but the British won in spite of that. And I don't think we should, we should lose, lose sight of that. All the body blows. They, they won not because of luck.
2: They won because they were better. Now, Argentina made some big mistakes. And so you could, you could also say, well, it wasn't
1: luck. It was because they screwed up. And the biggest mistake I would contend they made was moving up their invasion. The invasion wasn't originally planned for April. It was planned. It was two, two things mentioned you know, over the years. One was at the end of the summer. One was at the beginning of the summer. And I, I, I believe it was the beginning of the summer. May, June time frame was the original invasion date. But we don't have time to go into what happened in South Georgia, but once that happened and, and, and uh, you know they, Galtieri turned to his planners and says, when can we invade? He says, we'll do it next week. I mean, that's literally what happened. So they moved up the plan from, from May, June to, the, to
2: April Fools. Well, what did that do? Well, it gave give them two, three months of, of better weather. <laughs> Because
1: had they invaded in June, July, August, September, the British would have been hard-pressed in the dead of winter in the South Atlantic to respond similarly. So that was a that was a, a problem. I've I've talked often about the the brave Argentine pilots, Air Force pilots. I mean, you know, once once the once the British uh, sank the Belgrano, the entire navy, Argentine Navy went back to, back to the coast.
2: And so now the bombing missions fell upon the Air, the Air Force generally. And they were told to hit the logistics ships. But in many cases, they didn't.
1: Some of that was because uh, Commodore Clapp had set up a tough Defense, a phalanx of ships in Falkland Sound. And when they flew over West Falkland after flying 300 miles, I mean, they don't have much time to, to make decisions. Uh, boom, 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 everything's shooting at them. And so they, and then the bombs don't detonate or don't ignite. And so they go through ships, they cause damage. But a lot of ships are hit and, and they don't sink. But the key logistics ships, six of three of the six
2: landing ship logistics, get hit. But later in the war, the big one, Canberra. Had Canberra been hit, a catastrophic loss of, of the number of troops on board, the, the hospital
1: that was on there, uh, it had, the, had the merchant ship Elk been hit, it had the, the biggest supply of ammunition. So if those lo- pilots had, had, had hit those logistics, you can't miss Canberra. I mean, if it sank, it would be still sitting out of the water. It's that big. It's, it was called the Old White Whale, but they didn't do that, so that was a mistake. I mean, they could have just said, "Hey, hit the biggest ship you can see," <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, 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 and that would that would have, that would have sunk that. But, um, but another mistake that they made, and the British took away their capability because they waited too long. Is after the British got on land, fifty miles away from San, Stanley, the Argentines did nothing. There was no counterattack on land as they were t- trying to build up the beachhead. Airplanes came in, created a lot of havoc, but there was no land force attack. I don't think they had the, uh, the mental wherewithal to do that. And then they hesitated. And then the British Harriers took out all the helicopters around Stanley. And so then they had no capability to counterattack. And they certainly weren't capable of walking across that island like the British did. Yeah. So, yeah, it wasn't luck. Fortunate. A lot of things the Argentines should have done differently. So.
0: Now, looking looking towards the future, um, when, when we dissect these lessons learned from the Falklands War, what... Do you think are those greatest lessons learned that that we should take forward as we consider future operations, future conflicts, uh, future constraints, and um and adversaries?
2: That's a, that's a that's a, that's a great question. That really gets at the the crux of the matter here, Matt. um First and foremost, uh, this is an expeditionary war. This is a true expeditionary war. We
1: have named, and our military has named a lot of units expeditionary units. We regard ourselves as an expeditionary force because we
2: we deploy outside of our homeland to fight somewhere else. But we have no experience in, in fighting an expeditionary war Which is routinely
1: defined as Guadalcanal, a remote area, a great distance away with little or no infrastructure and other support. We have zero experience to do this.
2: We have trained a generation of, of soldiers,
1: airmen, Marines at all ranks generals have come and gone and all they know is a fixed infrastructure in the middle
2: east robust airfields robust ports paved highways tremendous
1: warehousing capabilities now that's not the definition of really an expeditionary war and so that that's to, to think in those terms just very simply, if something breaks and you're really in it, the expeditionary war 8,000 miles away, it takes a while to get it replaced. And so you gotta think in a different way when you determine what you're gonna take, so on and so forth. So I would, uh, it would behoove everyone to really kind of understand what an expeditionary war is. Does this mean we'll ever fight one? Well, We really haven't ever done that.
2: I mean, there's not a time in our history where we have done what Britain did. I don't mean that derogatorily, but
1: we ended World War I very late, World War II very late. We were very ill-prepared for World War II. I don't have any idea whether we would ever have to face a situation like this, but uh, it's good to get your arms around it mentally in case you have to. And so a uh, number one takeaway, if
2: you're going to talk expeditionary, th- let's think about what it really is. Secondly, I-, I would say that this we need to understand that the seas and the skies are very dangerous.
1: You know, I've served an FD platoon leader in Vietnam.
2: I mean, I've been hit with artillery and rockets, but I've never been hit by an enemy plane. Um, Falklands was a deadly war. There were 250 plus
1: British men killed. There were 575 wounded. The majority of those killed were at sea. A lot of people don't know that. They were at sea, 60 or 70% of them. There was 113 ships of various types that were involved in the war. 25 of them were hit, 25% several of them were hit multiple times seven of them sank there was an lcu that sank there were 43 ground and and sea harrier jets 10 of them were lost approximately 20 25% there was 22 helicopters lost 74 days <laughs> and so i'm when i say that the 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 seas and and, and the skies are deadly a lot of us, a lot of us, have are distanced now from World War II. Okay.
2: We don't remember. Well, we entered. We entered the war in December 1941. Prior to that happening, 2,500 merchant ships had been lost at sea. Think. <laughs> Get your arms
1: around that one. After we entered. Another 1,600 would be sunk. 5,000 ships here, 4,000 ships. The seas are deadly. Now, you you think that the waters are more deadly today than they were in 1941, 42, 43? I suspect they were. They didn't have anything like drones out there.
2: And so that would be certainly another uh, takeaway. And a third one, um, this whole notion of center of gravity. Clausewitz.
1: I think I see a Clausewitz book back there in your shit. <laughs> I can see the blue
2: stripe. Yeah, I've read that. <laughs> one. Um, I, I would say that in a true
1: expeditionary war, you will likely find a center of gravity
2: in your supply chain. On this one here, there's no question about it. That had uh, Had Argentina
1: somehow been able to take out Ascension Island, the war was over. Um, British knew that. That, That's why they had F-4s that were patrolling the island. They had other ships down there patrolling the island. Had they taken out Canberra, Canberra, 3,000 troops, all this other stuff I told you about, a hospital, had they taken out Canberra, it would have been extremely difficult. Now the British realized this, and they ordered it cross-loaded about uh, several days before the actual D-day, but and so you, you'll you'll find something like that, a, a piece of type, some kind of organization, some type of location that's going to help you maintain a fight over thousands of miles. Um, likely could cripple the force. And so that's something worth thinking about if you're a loggy or a killer, you
2: know. That makes sense? And finally, I would say that uh, you you just have to know that uh,
1: everything takes longer. And so if a ship goes down or something gets destroyed, you don't handle something correctly, um, it just... uh, if you're 8,000 miles away, it just takes a long time to get it. You know, it's a very simple thing. In my book, I talk about the jerry cans, you know, jerry cans. There was a guy by the name of Private Potter in San Carlos that filled jerry cans. And uh, and they the re daily requirement in the, in the first week was 700 plus cans a day. Now, you can only do that if you get the can back. <laughs> you, and so that's the same, like a, like a cargo net. You you can't keep the supply going unless you get the cargo net back. It's little things like this when you're eight thousand miles away that you think about, and then when you forget it, well, I can't repair that Rapier air defense missile because I don't have. I can't can't run it because I don't have any diesel fuel. <laughs> you know. Anyway, yeah, that, those are a few takeaways I'd, I'd offer up. When we think of
0: the future of conflict i think it is important to keep into context the cyber domain the space domain all of these you know futuristic elements right unmanned vehicles but then on the opposite side of the spectrum you know we have the human element of war and we have these other constants right you know you look at what's happening in the war in ukraine right now and if you took a black and white photo, you would think that you step back to 1914, 15, 16, 17, because it looks just like you know trench warfare um, in Europe. And the same thing with when we're talking about uh, logistics and supply chains, stuff needs to move in one way or another. Um, yeah. And um, And to your point with, the air and the sea being a dangerous place you know we're going to be vulnerable we're going to be stretched thin um you know when we look at the you know pacific theater um when we look at just really when we're thinking about the world as a whole uh and and where we stand as a you know as a nation as a um as isolated as we are that that works for our benefit, but that also works to our detriment as well. Um, and there's only so much that our power projection can can take us, right? Where whether we're talking about maritime prepositioning, whether we're talking about um, uh, our current advanced basing, it, it only gets us so far, right? And and to your point, also just to kind of reinforce that, you know, especially over the last you know few decades, we we are used to. Having stationary bases, infrastructure, and 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 things already just laid out, you know, for you know for us to work with and and to execute. Um, But nothing gets more real and raw than than looking at this case study here. Than looking at uh, not only is is this uh, was the objective eight thousand miles away and i never thought about in the context of it was that's a thousand miles further than guadalcanal was um Mm. you know but the the lack of infrastructure and and the lack of really (laughs) anything that would benefit a logistician was, was non-existent um
1: we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that expeditionary warfare is just all about something out in the ocean islands in the south atlantic afghanistan was very much an expeditionary situation okay we didn't have any ports there we didn't have any i mean i'm the guy that 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 had responsibility for uh, you know surface uh, transportation for department of defense at that time there was no rail link from karachi into afghanistan at that time it was new um so that you know don't think about the seas all the time an expeditionary warfare could very much be in a situation like Afghanistan. Now, we didn't build up real fast and, and run it to a, a conclusion, <laughs> okay? The second thing that I would say is the British, when I, I, this was a total completed deal here. Um, on the 14th of June, you now have to envision the British force. It is spread out all across this island. They go into Stanley. There's no running water. There's no electricity. The the, the, the residents there, 1,000 people, are happy to see them, of course, but they're hungry. No food. Argentines have done it. They've defecated all over the town. There's mines surrounding the town. The supply chain extending out 200 miles to the total exclusion zone where the supply ships are has to be reversed.
2: That is a big deal the hospital's 50 miles away um and so getting your getting your head around after the victory here they did it very well it it, it wasn't he had ten thousand argentines there they have to eat they got them out of dodge
1: quickly they you know and with the space of within a week, they were starting to redeploy their people. Now, why, why, don't, why won't this happen again? Because within a matter of years, they started building up the Falklands. If you go down to the Falklands today, I've been there twice, okay? It's, it's not just as rugged as it was before because you got two ports, ports, ships with cranes, one of which is exclusively dedicated to the military you've got a large international airfield, you've got jets, you've got spike planes, you've got early warning, um, you've got not two platoons, you've got several thousand people on the ground and a, re- a reserve ready National Guard type element there too. So it's, it's worth real unders- becoming smarter on how the British tidied up this place. How, 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 why this was a complete deal here? I mean, as we reflect back on our history over the last 50 years, trying to find a complete
2: deal is difficult. Panama probably suits the case, you know, but uh, very difficult. So, that's probably my final, final thing to think about relative to the Falklands.
0: Well, sir. I I really appreciate your time today. Um, I think I think this is just an outstanding you know overview and and case study and, and primer for um uh, for airmen to you know keep on digging and doing more research. I, I'd invite airmen to check out your book, uh, Logistics in the Falklands War: A Case Study in Expeditionary Warfare. This is uh you know this is really cool and um that's been awesome. Having an opportunity to, to actually sit down and, and talk with you and, and and hear directly from you, your perspectives. And um, yeah, just an awesome experience. So I really, really, really appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much. It's been my, it's been truly my pleasure to to speak with you today.
1: Uh, t- I tell you, I hope everybody hears this. I mean, uh, you're a very impressive uh, young man. And the Air Force is uh, is very. Uh, uh,
0: they should be proud to have you doing this. So, I've enjoyed it. I appreciate you, sir. I really appreciate you. (laughs) Thank you again for listening to Tesseract Podcast. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, And connect with us on LinkedIn. Any references to trademarked, copyrighted, or protected products or services such as books, movies, or businesses are used here for the limited purpose of education and professional development of Air Force Airmen. If you have any questions, please contact us at www.tesseract.af.mil.